Hello, I'm Evans Mirages, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest on this podcast is the music director of the Cincinnati Symphony, Louis Langre. Louis Langre also is making his Cincinnati Opera debut in the 2017 season with the opening production of the season of Puccini's La Boheme. We'll be talking about Louis's career, which actually began in the world of opera before he became a symphonic conductor, his love for La Boheme in particular, and what it's like to be a conductor in the 21st century. Louis, every artist needs inspiration. For some, it comes from nature, walking in the woods, or some, it's literature, visiting a museum, having a coffee with a friend. What are some of the things that inspire you in your work? What are things that are important to you where you say, ah, that makes me really think about a piece, or this is how I would love this piece to sound? Are there certain things for you in your life? Oh, no, it's the score. It's just going back and back and back to the score. And even if you you are very well prepared, there are always some new discoveries for yourself. You said, oh, how can I have not seen that? Actually, maybe you saw it, but you, it, it's not to do an accent for an accent or a diminuendo. It's why, what does it mean? How makes making it inevitable. So if we were to make the analogy of going back and reading a favorite book that you read five years ago, and let's say it's a great novel, uh, whatever, and you read the page again and you, you see a nuance of characterization or the way that the words follow each other, you thought, ah, that's new. Is it the same in music? Are there... Is it the way that the instruments come in? Is it the way that there's... What are some of the things that you discover again? Let's say for in your preparation of Bohème for Cincinnati Opera, what are some of the things that when you were studying your score again, you said, oh, my goodness, I never realized that was there? Anything in particular? Mm, nothing in particular. But maybe today I'm even more mesmerized by the variety of dynamics mm. from 7P. Pianissimo, <laughs> hardly audible, to three Fs. And of course, this kind of piece that everybody knows, uh, you forget very easily what it means. Or, yeah, the, this adolescent, this Kejeli da Manina, for instance, which, which is one of the most famous aria. And when it comes, you feel, oh, yes, I know that. And, but it's very easy to forget the situation, to have this freshness, this, the character of, of, and to remember how you were yourself, in, yourself when first time you touch the hand, of course, by accident, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera or your knees touch in the movie theater or whatever. And this speaks about that. So I think the analogy with the book is is just perfect because why does a book touch ourselves? Because we have the feeling that it speaks of about us. And how can this writer speak so perfectly right about my feelings and uh, and then you're 
creative by reading the book. That's why so often when we see the the you know the book being made uh, as a movie, even if it's with our favorite director and actor, we feel oh no, the book was so much better. Often because often. because it was our book. It was our reading, not the reading of somebody else. You're reading yourself into the story. Totally, yeah. totally. There is probably also the the care of Puccini to the details. You know. It, to slow down is one thing, but how to slow down? Mm. Uh, rallentando s is completely different than uh, ritardando or stentando. Or sometimes he just doesn't know exactly how to say it, so he writes losingando con il tempo, playing with the tempo. And of course there is rubato, so you steal a little bit of time. And just searching for the these little details differences and making it then make sharing it with the singers i think you grow in a piece also because you experience it with different uh stage directors and singers and orchestras one of the things that is so remarkable to me about listening to puccini and the composers of this time, the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, is this discovery of how they are able to make music sound conversational. With Verdi, of course, yes, I mean, you create beautiful rhythmic patterns and wonderful legato phrases and whatnot, but it's much more in a form. Maybe when you get to Otello and Falstaff, not so much, but certainly in the Rigoletto Trovatore Traviata, the central of, of the operas that we know and love. But what is some of the secret about these Verismo operas that they sound like conversation with music underneath? Absolutely. The other are declamation. Mm. But uh, the 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 uh, conversation, théâtre de conversation, is something completely different. And uh, I think, for, especially for Bohème, it part, it's also it's one of the rare opera when you don't have title roles. It's not about Mimio the tenor and Mimi or Rodolfo. It's a group. It's a bunch of people, and uh, then it's it's completely different. There are there there are no stars, and there are all stars. This idea of tempo that you talk about. For a layman listening or seeing an opera of this period, let's focus on Bohem because it's what you're doing for Cincinnati Opera in your debut. But this sense of tempo is, I watch conductors in rehearsal and I watch singers in rehearsal. Sometimes there are no two bars in the same tempo. Sometimes there's more than one tempo in a bar. And as you say, sometimes Puccini is able to make something more specific and yet sometimes he leaves it up to the conductor. So how do you and the singers figure out the pace of that conversation? I think if the first, the same, if you speak the same language, the same musical language, mm -hmm. it helps a lot. Then as a conductor, you have to anticipate, you have to provoke with your gesture 
how to influence with the singing. But of course, it's never what you expect because it singers are not a machine. They have their own length of breathe, breathing, etc., etc., body, character, uh, culture, everything, and experience. So there is another part of you who also adapt and then correct from what you hear. So it's always giving and taking and, and this ping pong, even sometimes so fast that you don't think on it. You, it's just what is conducting. I mean, it's, it's also making with your body, not only with your arms, but with your, with your brain, with your heart, with who you are, this finding a way to interfere, to change, to inspire the way that musicians and singers will then play together. So it's, it's really favoriser le, di le discours musical. Mm -hmm. How do you say that in, uh, in uh, English? I don't know, but... It's, it's, it's progressing the musical discussion, the musical conversation. Yes. So we're back to this idea of where if it is... If it is as right as humans can make it, it sounds as though it's reality with music. And, absolutely, absolutely. But the conductor is the only musician in the in the theater. <laughs> I mean, in the pit or stage, who never produces any sound. One hopes. Every once in a while, you hear some conductors who grunt a little bit. Yes. Or if you listen to the wonderful old Toscanini recording, yeah. he sings along wonderful. his wonderful, croaky 80s Absolutely. tenor baritone. <laughs> I love that recording because when you hear him singing along, you are remembering that he was at the premiere. 50 years before, because the recording was made yeah. on the 50th anniversary of, or to honor the 50th anniversary in 1946. Yeah. And I get very emotional listening to it, not only because it's a beautiful performance, but because the man who created it is on the podium again 50, year, 50 years later, 50 years of living. That's something. So when you first conducted Bohème, and now, however many years later, how have you changed? In other words, in your relationship to the piece, when you look at those kids again on stage, do you see them differently now as someone who's conducted a lot, someone who's lived 20, 30 years of your life between now and the first time you did it? I don't think I changed interpretation. Mm -hmm. I just go deeper. But actually, I, th I really feel that La Bohème from all the operas I conducted is the less open which means that everything is written in the score. Everything, as soon as you try to, to interpret it, which means to go away from what the composer wanted and because you, you feel that it sh rather should be that way, then there are a few bars later you just realize that it's totally wrong and everything is written. It's like Mahler symphonies. He writes everything because... Before composer Mozart, for instance, was all, always there when his uh, pieces were created. So there is no need to write anything many, specific. Anything specific because he was there. But of course, more and more, then the the pieces had a kind of international career, and um, 
Puccini didn't want to be betrayed. So he writes so many specific things. And also in the writing, uh, if you decide to make something, I don't know, a phrase more aggressive or very aggressive, then maybe you you lose the lyricism of it. Or if you feel that it should be so lyrical that we should take time and add fermata because this note is so beautiful. So we need to sit on it because it's, well, then you lose completely the pace. So every time we try to go away from what the composer asks, we, we are wrong. It's the difference between sentiment and sentimental. Totally. One is evoking a strong reaction and the other is being too obvious. Absolutely. And there is never, and that's so fascinating with this uh, Toscanini uh, recording that you are speaking about, there is never a millisecond of self-indulgence. It's not, oh, let's enjoy ourselves with this beautiful music. No, it's let's let's try to go as close as we can from what the composer dreamed. And the text is so beautiful. I was remarking to a friend the other day that it may not be the greatest poetry in the world. Ilica and Giacosa were working as a team with Puccini, and Puccini, I'm sure, wrote him as hard as Verdi wrote Piave mm -hmm. and Boito and so on and so forth. But they provide him near-perfect conversational words for his melos to act upon. And I've always wanted to ask a French musician, because you read quite often that uh, Puccini and his orchestration, especially by the time he gets to, let's say, 1896 and Bohème, is very much influenced by French music, particularly the growing awareness of the world that, particularly the growing awareness of the world around Debussy. Is it true, as a French musician, do you hear Debussy or at least the late 19th century French music aesthetic creeping into his music, or is it just him, just his own inspiration? I think it's really Italian music, mm. La Bohème. Of course, it speaks about Paris, but does Fidelio speak about Spanish music? It's supposed to, to happen in Sevilla. Uh, so, but there is in the raffinement of the orchestration, of the transparency, of the, I would say, also the rhythmical writing, which is quite French, yes. Mm -hmm. I would say, and, and compared to other pieces, probably more than any other opera. That's why it's so hard, because if you, if you try, if you are too rhythmical, then it can become rigid and you lose the space. If you give too much space, then the rhythm are loose and then you... So y you have to be rigorous, but never rigid. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of describing it because it's that, it's that fine balance. It's the tension that is present in any great art. It's the tension mm -hmm. that's present in the line that you see in a painting where a woman's lip is just so or a man's arm is just so and one millimeter more and it would look kitschy. Absolutely, absolutely. But I love the text. I love the libretto. I love also the fact, yeah, it is definitely théâtre de conversation and not de déclamation. But 
they speak in verses oh, with yeah. rhymes. Yeah. So it gives the structure to the text itself. And uh, of course, when you have the first, the, the end of the r verse, which then gives the tension, which and this tension is resolved with the answer of of the rhyme. You are you always are in this game of tension, release, tension, release, and sometimes making just the most ridiculous uh, rhymes. Uh, to have fun, to mm -hmm. make fun of, of it. Or Colline, the philosoph philosopher, you know, who he cannot go to the barbiere. He goes to a barbitonsore. Bar bar he has to be so exaggerated. Exagger <laughs> exactly. And just the joy to use these old-fashioned words and or uh, whatever. Yesterday we worked on, uh, yeah, uh, Momus, Momus, the Café Momus. Momo was the god... Uh, of several things, but including the god of gossips. So when you, you let's go to the Café Momus, as soon as you, 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 you remember why this name was chosen, you, you sing it differently by itself. Exactly. That's why I, when I said we shouldn't interpret uh, Puccini, he doesn't need us to interpret him because there are so many things. But the more, the more you learn this piece, the more you discover, and the more, the more you love it. And the, and sometimes, yeah, just uh, the last uh, Mimi aria, um, sono, andati. sono andati, which turns into a bit of a duet. Yeah, exactly. How, what? is Puccini describing somebody just dying, collapsing. So how to make something collapse? Just you have a scale, Do mineur. C, B flat, A flat, G, F, E flat, D, C. But she fights, she fights, so she tried to escape from this descending. Sono anda, sono anda, so the structure, the bones are a descending scale. But she fights every step she of the way. She fights everything she can to unsuccessfully, mm. unfortunately, uh, against that. And the music describes it on the. It's so simple that actually you don't notice it. But it's the I simplicity love. of genius. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's the the science of composition, of orchestration, of uh, yeah, using light motifs, which of course were very uh, very popular at popular, the time. Yes. Thanks to Wagner, of course. So it's it's not the, used the same way uh, as Wagner did, but you have this adrenaline of of the 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 team the and a very hard rhythm for an orchestra to play oh my god <laughs> oh my god and there are, there are hundreds of stories you know i i heard the story in in vienna somebody who uh, who uh, was assistant with carlos kleiber the legendary conductor and legendary 
La Bohème conductor. Oh, yes. Fantastic. And uh, of course, first rehearsal, he, he uh, asked Carlos Kleiber, so tell me, how, what is your secret to start this piece? Because it's famously difficult. And uh, Carlos Kleiber said, well, I have, a tr I have something very, uh, a trick. And said, oh, tell me, tell me. He said, well, you know, it's very easy. I arrive, take a bow and look at the audience and there go louder and louder applause. Then suddenly I turn back, I start. So because the applause are still there, no one will ever know if it's right or together, wrong. right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which didn't really answer to the question to this guy. I asked Georges Prêtre, who was a uh, great conductor who passed away this year. Yeah, just about a few months ago. And uh, he conducted, uh, yeah, uh, conducted La Bohème zillions of time. And uh, he told me, I remember, it was f before the first time I, I conducted it, 22 years ago. And I must say, every time I conduct La Bohème, I think on what he said to me. He said to me, don't think uh, technically. All the, all the conductors are scared because they, 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 they think, how can I be clear? What should I beat? Should I add an upbeat? And it's too complicated. You should arrive on the podium, feel champagne. And if you feel, I don't know, beer, it's not the same tempo. And he told me, you will see, I promise to you, all the, the problems will be solved. And he was so right. If I mean, it's not only the conductor who has to think about that, but if there is a tension, a tension, a, a good energy, kind of tension, yeah, an electricity, mm -hmm. even uh, um, there is only one tempo possible. You speak of Georges Prêtre and getting advice 22 years ago when you were then towards the beginning of your career. What inspired you to want to become a conductor? Because you were working in the opera house, you were coach repetiteur, you you know, gifted musician. What gave you the bug? How did it start? I would say it was by chance. I didn't expect it. I was always fascinated, but I would say more by orchestras than by conductors. So as a pianist, I loved doing playing Brahms Quintet or Schumann Piano Quartet, etc., doing chamber music and playing uh, Winterreise, etc., with singers. And a friend of mine told me, you know, the, basically the, the, all the, almost all the great leader and melody singers are great opera singers. The opposite is not Always true. Always true. But so if you want to meet wonderful singers, go in an opera and you will meet them. Uh, yes, I met uh, Anne-Sophie von Otter, Jose Van Damme, etc., etc. at the Opera de Lyon. But I went there to meet singers, not <laughs> because I was fascinated by opera. And actually, I discovered opera there. Especially, I would say, my very first shock was uh, Peleas et Mélisande, Debussy, with, actually, with José with José Van Damme as Golo, and it was a fabulous production. And, uh, but because I loved 
orchestra, orchestra rehearsals. The the director then uh, told me, uh, I see you uh, during every break with the singers. You come and you... Is this Brossman? Was this Jean-Pierre? Yes, Jean-Pierre Brossman. Yeah. And it was when uh, when uh, John Elliott Gardiner was music director. Mm-hmm. And so I see you spying all the time. Would you be interested to be assistant on some uh, production? I said, well, why not? I said, yeah, because we have a young conductor in his early 30s who uh, I was in my early 20s. Um, or mid-twenties, and do, would you like to be assistant on La Finta Giardiniera? I said, why not? And this young conductor was Semyon Bichkov. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, I would say it's really, and I was so lucky because working with John Elliott Gardiner and Semyon Bichkov, you can't have more different experience so so often I, uh, too often you see assistant trying to copy because they admire the, the, sure. the these maestros i had no possibility to copy anyone <laughs> because they were so, so different completely. i think for our audience we should explain that john elliot gardner is one of the leaders of the historically informed performance path and Semyon Bishkov is a graduate of the Leningrad Conservatory, studied with Ilya Musin, one of the legendary Absolutely. teachers of conducting. And he would not be, but the interesting middle ground is, I would not think of Semyon Bishkov conducting a very early Mozart opera. So it must have been a very unusual uh, study for you. It was, it was quite unusual, but I would say because there are two great musicians. Yes. I mean, of course, now uh, you can hear... Uh, John Elliott conducting Verdi Requiem and, uh, and how beautifully. And uh, Semyon playing uh, 18 classical music mm-hmm. wonderfully, absolutely wonderfully. Um, so you started to work a little bit with conductors, particularly Lyon. Did Semyon and you ever have a conversation about becoming a conductor? He's your sort of 10 oh, years yes. your senior. What, what happened? He told me to be careful. He told me, you know, if you're a conductor, st- by starting l- conducting will be like a drug. You won't be able to stop it. You won't be able to do it, to, to, to live without conducting. Doesn't mean that you will be a good conductor. You can be a good or a bad conductor. But if you're a conductor, be careful. You become an addict. Totally. And he was so right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are actually the only teaching, or it was he, he's, he was not a teacher, of course, but mentor. advices, mentor. He put me, uh, as you know, there, there, there are many rehearsals with piano. So he didn't want to conduct many of these, but he had to stay in the house. So he put me in the pit. And then when the stage director stopped for um, some staging problems, just <laughs> tapped you on my, the shoulder on, on my shoulder and said, you know, the, this fermata, you, you closed it inside uh, on the on left side. Try on the right side and tell me how it feels. So when we did it the same place, I, I, I did as he suggested and said, yes, that's that's so much better thank you and it was all these advices that I will never forget also when there are some 
ensemble problems. So, you know, when uh, suddenly people are not together, then you try to have a very strong beat and then told me, did you listen how they sing? I said, yeah, they were not together. I said, yeah, but how did you, do, how did you beat? I said, well, I, I need to show where the beat is. And he told me, yeah, but didn't you notice they all looked at you because they all felt, they all knew they were apart. So then if you beat so... Like a drum major. Yeah, like brutal, in a brutal way. How do you think they will they will sound? They will sound brutal. If there is you no know, some problem, the, the automatic reaction of everybody is, oh, let's look at the conductor. Then if you conduct the way you want them to sing and to sound, they will they will uh, adjust. They will so adapt. So simple. Less is more. Exactly. Totally. So that that was unforgettable moments and the more and more uh, I conducted the more yeah natural I uh, it I don't know if if I'm a good or bad conductor but certainly I am a conductor I I feel at home I feel that on that box you are at home yes absolutely so you start as a conductor in the most time-honored way of first in the opera house how does your symphonic life begin to develop in your earliest years? It developed after. Actually, I was in the beginning uh, an opera conductor who conducted symphonic repertoire. And now I think I'm just the opposite. I'm a symphonic conductor who loves going back time to time to opera. Um, but first, I actually La Bohème is a good luck opera for me because Gleinborn uh, Opera House Festival is a very important place for me in my in my heart in my development also so I was conducting an operette uh, Offenbach operetta in Netherlands and suddenly somebody came and said well I'm working Gleinborn would you agree to conduct Don Giovanni for us and uh, for the touring mm-hmm. and I said well, of course, <laughs> of course. How many seconds does it take you to say yes? None, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but how weird, you know, you conduct an, an operetta and somebody asks you to conduct the drama giocoso. And uh, it it was a great experience. Then they asked me to conduct La Bohème two years after. And I conducted La Bohème in 95, so 22 years ag- ago. And uh, after the last performance, uh, the manager of the touring uh, of the touring company, Sarah Playfair, asked me if I would agree to be the next music director of the Glenbourne Touring Opera, succeeding to Ivor Bolton. And uh, well, it didn't take <laughs> any more second to say yes. And uh, in the festival itself and for the tour, I had my probably happiest years in opera. And, uh, and also La Bohème was the first piece I ever conducted at the Vienna State Opera. It's so a good luck charm for you then, really. It is. It, yeah. it is a very... Well, it was for Luciano Pavarotti too. Les Lisir d'Amore and 
La Boheme were his two good luck charm operas. Oh, really? When he would make a debut in the beginning of his career, if he had a choice, it would always be one of those two. One of those two wow. operas. So I think American audiences in general first become aware of you in a big way when you are appointed with some surprise, because you were not that well-known, as the head of Mostly Mozart. Well, How did that happen? I was totally unknown uh, in, this, in this country, at least. Uh, well, I was invited to conduct uh, a series of concerts as a guest in uh, 98, um, last century, my God. <laughs> and uh, it was a beautiful experience. So I was invited again uh, and again and then uh, Gerard Schwartz left the festival and they were looking for a music director they asked me if I would agree Jane Moss actually asked me if uh, I would uh, love to have a deeper relationship with the festival with Lincoln Center and uh, voila. so voila I was uh, named in 2002 and I started in two, 2003 and uh, now uh, I'm still there and uh, I just signed a new contract until starting uh, next year and until uh, 2020. So there's no mistaking that you are a French musician of sen by sensibility, by approach in the very most beautiful sense of the word. But I think people would be pleasantly surprised to know that Cincinnati is your home now. You and your family live here. How was that decision made? Was it an easy one? Was it tough to relocate from from France to the United States? Well, I'm French, as you said, but <laughs> I'm a little bit different because I come from Alsace, which is, uh, you know, changed. It goes uh, back between Germany and France over hundreds of years. Back exactly. And forth. <laughs> so probably for the French, I'm I'm a German. Too German, and for the Germans, you're a little too French. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Alsace is uh, near the on in the Rhine Valley. So working at over the Rhine feels like like home. <laughs> so this center of of Cincinnati and Cincinnati. Also, is is a um, very American city, but with Germanic yeah. roots, and uh, I feel at home. Also, what does it mean to be a, a music director? It's not only conducting more concerts than your than the the guests. It's I would say even not only a musical responsibility. Mm. It you have. It's Simon Rattle who say that so beautifully and uh, rightly. He, he say you have to understand a city. Therefore, you have to live in this city. You have to understand the glorious aspects of the city. And you have also to understand the problems of the city. And then music should be one of the responses to heal these problems. And uh, he was so right. And you've done a lot of that in your time here in Cincinnati with things like luminosity and the expansion of the outreach of the orchestra into the community. Also giving Cincinnati now a taste of your former and still sometimes present life as an opera conductor, both 
making your debut at Cincinnati Opera, and in the fall to help reopen the wonderful music hall, a stage production of Peleas, your 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 guide star opera. It's so important, essential, wonderful, and uh, we are so lucky in Cincinnati to to have that to be part to to, to play operas every every season for ninety seven years for ninety seven years uh, with the Cincinnati Opera because. I mean, when Mozart writes a symphony or a mass or a piano concerto or an opera, he's the same composer. Yes. So uh, we, we are so thrilled to, to, to present uh, Peleas. Um, but I would say the fact that these musicians have played and recorded La Mer, Nocturne, Prelude à l'après-midi d'un faune will, of course help to find the, the sound for the opera, for Peleas. And I'm sure that after having played Peleas, we when will they go play back to it, when they go back to the orchestral literature, it will be different. Absolutely, because we will be enriched by this experience. And uh, I would say that playing uh, La Bohème, which is the most natural an evident piece and so tricky mm. because as you said there are so many uh, tempo differences sometimes on each bars and for instance the vals Musetta vals I have counted in uh, less than 2 minutes and 30, 30 seconds you have 25 tempo changes asked by the composer, written, printed on the score. Very fussy. <laughs> so when you when you accompany a soloist, you know, then on stage who let's plays with a lot of freedom, it will help so much. It makes a better listener both of the orchestra and the conductor. Absolutely. And I would say that for an orchestra, a concert orchestra, really think a lot about sound, color, and structure. An opera orchestra thinks immediately about the meaning. What do I play? Who? Wh what does this tremolo mean? Is it fear? Is it aggressivity? Is It can be hundreds of different things. What do I play? Not only how should I play that, but what, what does it mean? And then I think that both both uh, aspects in the pit and on stage is just add, adding an essential aspect of our life, of our of our profession, of our conception to the music. And what's the difference between a piano concerto, Mozart, and uh, an, an aria? The difference is that there is no text. But there is a musical dramaturgy. I fa often think that some of the finales, too, particularly the mature Mozart piano concertos, are like little arias anyway. Absolutely. They're because there's so much fun, there's so much joy, there's so much playfulness in it. It could be just as easily non piandrai as the end of a piano concerto. You conduct lots of performances, and it's always unfair to ask a musician but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have a measurement for yourself when a performance is over as to that was a success or hmm, that wasn't so good? What are the things that you 
What are some a couple of the things that you look at for yourself after a performance that says, yeah, that was good or hmm, that could be better? Are there some things that you know when it's over that, yeah, that was especially good or, oh, no, that was not so great? Well, good is not enough in art. It needs to be great. It's need to be, it needs to be unexpectedly amazing. And uh, I would say it's not only about the level because then you can always go higher and higher and higher. It's the commitment. It's the collective energy, the spirit, and combined, of course, with the individual talent. But when things happened because you were, you had so meticulously prepared the piece you are going to to conduct and to play, and because we know exactly how we wanted it to sound, it gives you a freedom of unexpected beauty, lightning, atmosphere, colors, that you can only create in a concert Mm -hmm. or in an opera performance. Mm -hmm. I remember some some moment where you just, you don't have the feeling to conduct anymore. You just, you're, you're part of it, you're in it, you're, and then the, music and theater are not two different things. You know, so often people imagine that the conductor is taking care of what you hear and the stage director is taking care of what you, what you see. It's just the opposite. Mm-hmm. I think a great opera production is when the stage director makes the audience sensitive to the music, to the musical gesture or color or atmosphere. And it's when the conductor delivers the theater, the the, theat- the theatralité of, of the piece. And then it's one thing. The, the, the singing, the beauty of the singing shouldn't be on the expense of the acting and, and vice versa. It's one thing. When you obviously uh, have, uh, once in a while, let's say, have a, a moment to think about the future, is there a list of operas in your head that you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? Is it an enormous list or is it a small list? No, it's rather a small list. But there is a piece or there is an experience that I will never forget, never, ever. I was assistant in uh, Bayreuth for Lohengrin with uh, Peter Schneider. Uh, uh, very fine conductor. Very yes, solid, very absolutely. fine conductor. And uh, Werner Herzog, the, the filmmaker, w- the filmmaker was doing the, the staging. And uh, during the, this year, um, Barenboim was conducting uh, The Ring and James Levine conducted Parsifal. Oh. And this is absolutely unforgettable for me. I watched all his rehearsals. He's a master, not only a great conductor, but a great trainer, a great... There are some things that he asked to the the orchestra and even that he said to 
to us the the assistant you know he was he was a very open person uh, even if we were all so impressed by him and i remember for the opening night he asked me so i have one ticket i don't know what to do with it would you like to see the performance uh, in the hall or if you want you can come to the pit in the pit and because i had seen all the rehearsals including the general rehearsal in the house i said that's the only time in my life probably that i can be in the pit and actually watch him conducting also because when you're in the in the auditorium you, you don't you, see you don't it's the, see. The, the mystical abyss it's that incredible uh, cowl absolutely. that covers the orchestra i am just speaking about it i have goosebumps it's i will never ever forget this uh, this experience so parsifal is on your wish list Parsifal is definitely on my wish list. <laughs> and James Levine, of course, as you know so well, learned so much of his operas by sitting three rows back from Maestro Cleva in the zoo, conducting ah. hi- from his little score while Cleva was trying to lead the Cincinnati Symphony. There's many, many anecdotes, and one of them is that a clarinetist one day at a break said, Maestro, which person are we supposed to follow? You or that little kid sitting <laughs> sitting in the back? Little kid being James Levine. Yes. As the Italians say, if it isn't true, it's a good story. Se non è vero e ben trovato. <laughs> but speaking of conductors and young conductors, uh, I'm sure you get approached by them all the time. Um, and I'm sure you're often asked for advice. But for, a, for an aspiring young conductor, are there... Are there certain things that you consider absolutely essential as part of your training? What, as a, what are a couple of things that are like the important ingredients of a good dish? What must you have in your musical arsenal to even want to be a conductor, to try? Oh, my God, this is a very difficult question because for a player... I mean, playing the piano, for instance, I, I used to be a pianist. You have some, some, some pianists who are seated rather high or low or whatever. Basically, it's all around the same uh, technique, around, I mm-hmm. mean, uh, with, with, of course, important differences, but still. Uh, with conductor, let's go on YouTube and you watch Karajan, Toscanini, Bernstein, Scholti. Completely different, each one of them. So different. So what was so good for me with Semyon, especially Semyon never uh, told me, look, this is how I do. You see, it works. Do the same. No, with your morphology, with your character, with your culture, with your everything which makes you unique, find your own body language but conducting is not only about movement it's about studying a score reading uh, going to museums feeding feeding fe- feeding feeding your soul your um, so often you know many conductors young or student comes and ask me how to do a career much more than what does this piece mean? What should I? And that's so sad because the best way to make a career is 
make to music. be ready with the score you have to prepare it's not about i don't know uh, press uh, marketing uh, people to to invent a nice story about you it, this is this is completely well i am reminded wrong. of an interview i heard when i was a youngster of the great pianist arthur rubinstein and he was asked a similar question he answered exactly as you have answered what do i say to young pianists fall in love Go for a walk along the Seine. Go to a museum. Read great literature. Practice, but not too much. Live, because a great musician is an informed musician, not just someone who has fantastic technique and who can subdivide and who can do his fermata going out as opposed to going in. It's extraordinary that I think we forget as laymen that, yes, there is a craft and there is an art to being a musician, but you are, as a conductor especially, you are trying to take so much of the human experience and pour it into a set of gestures that will elicit from an orchestra magic. Hmm. And as you said, you're silent. There's nothing you could do except make, make suggestions. So when you are approaching a new opera or even a new symphonic score, do you have a particular way of, of studying? Is it just simply familiarizing yourself page by page? Do you have specific ways of marking a score? What's your, what's your personal routine for a new piece? For a new piece, a symphonic piece, I first need to understand the structure of it. Ah. And, uh, and then I add all the things little by little which are but I don't start with the first page and uh, don't I don't turn then the page before the before knowing the first page by memory no it's not about that it's first to have to embrace the piece in general and then like a zoom you know you go mm -hmm. smaller and smaller and smaller and you can go smaller and smaller and closer to closer because you you have some Height, you have some depth no, it's, as it, well. It's like when you when you drive. Uh, first time you 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 drive, you take a, a road. You don't know. Does it the curve, curve this way or does it curve that exactly. way? Exactly. Yeah. So you're quite hectic, and then little by little, you you can anticipate. Well, it's the same with the score. When you have some height with, with it you can you can go closer and closer and closer with uh, with an opera I read it or I play it on the piano and uh, there is quite soon a moment where I I need to get away from the music because the music is such an influence you know it so I just read the libretto Huh. without the score because uh, because I don't want to be influenced by the music so often I would say especially with singers you know there are so many time uh, you can read in a in a score molto espressivo so the singers will feel, oh I need to be very expressive which means that I will instead of thinking what do I e really express you just add a lot of dramatism which is completely empty and fake 
It's a little bit what you were talking about earlier. You don't you don't make a bigger simply a bigger gesture to get an orchestra back together. You find that gesture that is true. Absolutely. Is what you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Same with the same with expression for a singer then. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, yeah, you 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 need to take out all the useless thing and just go to what the question should be always what does this piece mean really and not and that's a default with too many i would say young conductors and what what could i do with that you know i have to to conduct that for a competition how can i impress them by making maybe you know there is counterpoint so the the second voice maybe i should give it much more so people will feel oh i never heard that yeah maybe but does the second voice be louder than the first voice uh, so it's really about i would say about integrity integrity and the musician will always know about that mm-hmm. if you try to have your own success uh by trying to show off or if you try to serve the music a theme of this conversation we've been having, Louis, that keeps coming back again and again in my head is that everything you strive for as a musician is a striving towards simplicity mm-hmm. and removing extraneous, unnecessary gesture so that the heart of the music speaks. You use a formidable technique and years of training and lots of experience, but it's not about making a show. It's about making it simple, meaning that you, you're, you're there to let the essence of the music come alive in front of the audience, whether it's an opera audience or whether it's a symphonic audience. Absolutely. And our, that's why I'm, I'm also so excited uh, for our next collaboration in autumn with Peleas, because Peleas is only about that. It's not showing your own sensitivity. It's getting the, the audience sensitive. Mm-hmm. It's the the very beginning, if you try to make it super mysterioso and things, yeah, you will distract people from the <laughs> the essence of it. So it's not showing how an amazing musician I am. It's making them amazing musicians, even if they cannot read music. And audiences, I find, over decades of listening to concerts and going to operas, there is a collective intelligence in an audience that Absolutely. is very difficult to define, but I have been in theaters and in concert halls where I feel there is an electricity in the room, and everybody knows it's a good performance. And I've also been in performances, sadly, where everyone around is distracted, and I use, the cough, I use coughing sometimes as my meter for how <laughs> good a performance is or is not. If it's it, true. If it's the middle of February and the audience is absolutely silent, the conductor and the orchestra are at the top, I totally (laughs) agree. So you deal in a profession mostly, I would say, that is in some ways very low-tech. You use your body. Your musicians play, generally speaking, acoustical instruments. But has the technology of today either aided or changed your work? Are there things about the 21st century explosion of technical innovation in every aspect of our lives that you have either found helpful or, on the other side, not so helpful. 
Too many iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, uh, actually, I'm uh, I'm probably not a good judge of that. I, for instance, I have no. I just have a little sound machine. I never bought any super high tech CD because for me, it's listening to music. For instance, I- is source of information so yes you go on YouTube you can go and uh, listen and even watch uh, uh, La Bohème Kleiber Zeffirelli at La Scala uh, with was it yeah Pavarotti mm-hmm. uh, and ex- or you go, you you watch some some uh, concert and you you see on which part of the bow <laughs> the Berlin Phil is playing this specific uh, passage, or uh, you can yeah, uh, or tempis or balance or, but it's more about informations. What is fantastic and terrible <laughs> in this life. So let's start with the, the terrible. With all these clips where you, you they change image three times in a second, yeah. otherwise people are bored and they are zapping. Well, now you come and you listen to La Bohème, you dedicate an entire evening to actually forget about... The speed of the world outside. Exactly, and about your, your life of the the day but you don't forget yourself it's a way to immerse yourself back and to open your secret garden to your sensitivity or sensibility and reconnect with yourself and then an amazing evening in concert in opera or in a restaurant in uh, is that you feel transformed before you're you're a different person or or going to a museum or having a walk in the in the in the forest suddenly this experience has transformed you and it can be a shock or a contrary a very peaceful moment and then you live better and so often uh, not so often actually but when it happens, nothing can can r- replace this live, physical, emotional, and collective experience than going to see and to listen La Bohème and relating, make it, making it relating to you. We all have been... Mimi or our Mimi Rodolfo Marcello. Uh, of course, it's not our story, but we don't care about the story. It's what the story allows to, to people to reveal of the soul. It's not the 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 about the the story. It's what it can tell about us, and then. That's wonderful. So probably now, because we are s- there is so much high technology, and we need more than ever. And 
yes, there is there is uh, probably people not probably people go less to concert or to theater or because we have uh, iPhones, we have. Uh, 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 television, etc., all of that. But maybe because it's more rare, it's even more unforgettable. And it's precious. one of the last things. Live performance for me, whether I'm in the theater or in the ballet or in the opera or in the symphony concerts, it's one of the last things on earth that can't be replicated exactly. And it means that you are alive. It means that you are living in a particular moment in time that will never happen again. Yes, you can record it, but that's not what you heard. That's a, that's, a, that's a reflection of what you heard. And for me, the joy of performance is being alive in the moment and understanding that the, the intensity, the air around me, the reaction of the woman sitting behind me, the little laughter that I hear when a wonderful funny line is delivered in a play or in an opera, it makes you more alive. It allows you to recognize that we as thinking human beings have this capacity to grow and to grow in a community of people, which is quite extraordinary and can only happen in live performance when, when you shut off your phone. Louis, our hour together has gone by like a second, but I always like to end these conversations with the same set of short questions which only require a short answer, or I don't have an answer. So I will ask you these short okay. questions to finish our time together. What did you have for breakfast? Well, today I had, uh, <laughs> you know, very, uh, very unusual. But I had that when I was living in my grandmother's farm, uh, because you are not, you don't throw anything away. So yesterday we didn't didn't finish the salad. So I ate the salad from yesterday and some potatoes, uh, cold potatoes. That's very Alsacien <laughs> of you. <laughs> Never let food go to waste and a good potato. <laughs> exactly. Are you reading? Even though you have a, an incredibly full schedule of conducting, are you still? Are you kind of the kind of person who keeps a book on your nightstand? Are you reading anything in particular right now? The, there are some books which never or hardly ever leaves me, but there are quite. It's the Paul Valéry, the Cahier. So it's thoughts that he had and that he put on it. I mean, there are there are thousands of pages. And right now, I don't have a lot of time, but to go to bed and read one philosophical or poetical sentence or question, most of the time there are questions, and uh, falling asleep with the unanswered question. <laughs> is, uh, yeah, there, otherwise I have time to read novel only when I'm in uh, when I don't work because then I can't I can't stop I mean I just, you become books. an addict for reading as opposed to an addict for music exactly <laughs> and then uh, I mean a sleepless sleepless night because you can't quit the book oh. is not an option when you have to conduct <laughs> sadly um, do you watch some television from time to time is there a television program that catches your eye or no never Never, ever. <laughs> Good. Um, with your iPhone, uh, and I know you use a telephone, is there an application that you particularly like on it that you use a lot or no? No. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Uh, right now for La, La Bohème, I would say the metronome. <laughs> because uh, on your iPhone yeah yes. I have one too <laughs> because Puccini was so specific that he even put the tempo markings mm -hmm. so it's not that I feel a slave of the tempo markings but they help you sometimes it helps too. to know yeah. um, do you have a couple of uh, go-to restaurants that you like in Cincinnati you've been here a while now and have eaten out some this doesn't mean that you're not liking the others you've been to but a couple that you say, if you, if you have that rare evening out, you say, you know what, I'd like to go to dinner. Let's go to X. Well, maybe because in the, in the beginning, uh, I needed to feel at home. So a French <laughs> chef was... If, uh, a a particular one we both know. <laughs> exactly, Jean Robert. And he's, he's a wonderful chef. And he's also... A wonderful mensch, for sure, and uh, a great friend of all of the arts in Cincinnati. Exactly well. what he has he and his wife, yeah. absolutely, and what he has done for the community, what he's doing, and uh, so I don't, I don't want to separate the chef who is amazing and the person who is also amazing, and uh, there are so many beautiful moments that I have experience there but uh, yeah otherwise mm, of course Boca I would say well Jean-Robert has several restaurants yeah. but mostly and this I didn't have in Paris at home we have a garden and we have a vegetable garden and uh, just before coming eating uh, beans from your garden, eating salad from your garden. Nothing eating, can compare. Absolutely. And, and already uh, tomatoes, already now. Uh, I need to know your fertilizer. <laughs> none. It's totally organic. Congratulations. But we have a compost. Ah, very smart. So, yeah. Very, very smart. What's the best career advice you received? I think you already talked a little bit about it with Samyun, but is there... A, is there a particular conversation you recall or something that someone said to you, not necessarily about conducting itself, but about living this life in music? It was something you remember to this day. Well, my father, when he asked somebody to make a harpsichord, you know, so there, there is a lot of decoration, and he wanted this phrase to be put on the instrument, essere non videre, which is to be and not trying to appear differently from what, what you are. So, which can be translated as be yourself. And I think that's just the key of, of, of a successful life. I remember I was very young. I had the first time the, the, the privilege to work with Alicia de la Rocha. It was a Ravel piano concerto in G major. It was the first time of my life I was conducting this piece. And of course, she, for her, she had a long career with, also with this piece. And at the end of the concert, it was a great experience. She told me right in the eyes, you know, eyes to eyes, I wish you a beautiful life. For the career, I wish you the best, but especially 
have a beautiful life. Wow. And um, you seem and to be living it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you, have a, do you have a favorite singer outside of the world of opera, a leader singer, or maybe even a popular singer? Doesn't it doesn't even need to be classical? No, because it's more, well, no, there are so many. Mm -hmm. I was in love with, is she known here? Helen Merrill, no. a jazz singer. I don't think <gasps> very well. When she, when she sang, I had, it was so sensuous, fantastic. But I have several, actually, concerts that I will never forget. If I have to choose two concerts, one would be Bruckner 7 conducted by Chili Bidak. Wow. Unforgettable. And, and long, speaking right? <laughs> and speaking of conducting, I mean he hardly moved his arm. There were minutes where he was just seated because he was already very old, sit sitting in front of the orchestra, watching them and conducting them without moving. But just with his eyes. Just with the eyes, with he was fully there. It was amazing, mesmerizing experience. And I would say the same feeling was almost around, uh, I think it was the same year, Miles Davis at wow. the end of his life playing in Vie Festival de Jazz de Vienne. It was fabulous. I mean, every, every phrase he, he played, he sang, it was really singing, was mysterious, simple, and magical. How do you deal with stress? Uh, quite well. I hope. <laughs> no, there, there are different... You don't go home and kick the dog or, or drink a glass of vodka or anything like that. No, but I have learned that, for instance, there are things that you can't control. So why, why being stressful about it? I mean, of course, as you know, a life of a conductor is more spending time in uh, planes mm. than... Uh, sometimes then rehearsal time and when you you miss a connection and then you have you everything is delayed you can you you see people you know being so upset f upset furious for and nothing for nothing there is nothing you can change about it but for things i can change yes then i'm involved in it before a concert or an opera performance i have a kind of hygiene of of the day ah uh after lunch i uh go back to the score with an opera i always read completely the piece without the score just the because again it's so for a musician you forget so easily the meaning of a certain phrase and because it's so emotional or what the music is so beautiful that you forget about the 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 
la vérité de l'expression de, de the truth, truth of the expression yes and what the composer was trying to convey because he is trying to convey through words that he sets to music exactly and not only about beauty because it's beautiful yes it's beautiful so what it needs to be true yeah. and uh, s then I have a nap mm. and uh, I can there is not one day where I couldn't sleep I mean it, it's so it's not because I'm tired it's because it's a way for me to close to concentrate to focus and then after that I don't or hardly speak or if people speak to me it, it doesn't interfere with my concentration and uh, then you are ready then I'm ready I eat rice <laughs> <laughs> my very last question because there will be people who come to Bohème as their very first opera there will be people coming to operas all summer who may be coming to their very first opera Is there any advice when someone comes to you and says, you know, Maestro, I'm going to come and see an opera for the first time. Anything, any way I should particularly prepare myself as a listener? What's your advice for a first-time opera goer? Oh, I don't know. You were one once. Yes, I envy them. Because La Bohème, uh, you can't, is ir irresistible. And I have conducted a lot, La Bohème. I have also attend to many performances and there is not one performance where I can refrain tears at the end never ever but when I'm conducting I never I never cry of course you make I, the audience cry <laughs> yes <laughs> that's your job <laughs> I'm not here to <laughs> I'm not in the audience I have to be to have a clear uh, thinking and and But it sounds like you're suggesting an open mind and an open heart. Totally. And don't, yeah, let, let, let it invade you. Let, let yourself immerse in it. Don't come with preconceived uh, ideas. And that's so good with people coming for the first time. Because so often other people, they have a very specific idea of what they like, probably because they loved so much the f the first impression or they had a, a recording of a, with the specific their best singer and then sometimes they come and say oh why d did you take this passage quite fast and then the other oh no no it was slow uh, compared to what well to my recording yeah but so for somebody who has no preconceived idea enjoy open open your heart open yeah your sensitivity and your sensibility this piece speaks about us because it's art and uh, using the story but beyond the story it speaks about la condition humaine the human condition Louis thank you so very much thank you Evans Great pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Maragis. <laughs>